um, by a lady in his audience. Sir, do you really mean to tell me you believe that the serpent in the garden spoke? And Karl Barth supposedly replied, Madam, uh, the question is not whether or not the serpent spoke. The question is what did the serpent say? Now, we're reading Genesis 1. Next week we might, we're going to be reading Genesis 2. One of the questions on your mind might be, did God really create the world in seven days? And my response to that for this day is, the question is not whether or not God created the world in seven literal days. The question is, what did God do on each of those seven days and why? The basic contour goes like this. Day one, God created light, night and day. Day two, God created the expanse or the vault, which is the sky and that sep- and between the heavens above and the earth below. Day three, God created the seas and the dry land. Day four, God created plants and lights, marking out uh, day and night and seasons, sun, moon and stars. Uh, Day five, God created the sea creatures. And day six, animals and finally humans. Now that's a partial description of what God does in this creation account. But I wonder if you were listening to the reading, can you, can you see, can you think of a word that I've missed out in my little summary there about what God did in his creative act? Any guesses? It says repeatedly through Genesis 1, oh, sorry, Danielle. It is good, yes, yes, that's true, yes. Um... Yes, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, The other thing that uh, I missed out in my (laughs) summary um, is it says repeatedly that God separated things out. It says in verse 4, God separated light from darkness. And in verse 6, God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. In the Hebrew imagination, you understand water, the above the earth and in the firmament was was it was waters, right? We now know that's not the case, but that's how they imagined it. There was waters below and waters above. And he separated the waters from the waters. In verse 9, the, te- the verse doesn't use the word separated, but it says, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. So God has separated the sea from the land. In verses 11 and 12, God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit which is in their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit which is in their seed, each according to their own kind. It doesn't use the word separate, but God is creating a separation by species. Verse 14 and 16, God creates lights in the heaven, the sun, moon, and stars, to separate day and night, to mark out or distinguish or separate times and seasons, 
and to separate light from darkness. Verse 20 to 25, God creates sea creatures and animals. And once again, we have an emphasis that God is creating all these things according to their own kind. So the manner of creation, what God did and how, involves this repeated process of separation. And think back to the beginning of Genesis 1. It said that the whole thing was formless and void. It had no structure, no meaning, no order to it. And so I picture it kind of like what God had, he created in the beginning, was this giant, knotted, tangled bunch of threads, colored threads. And it was all bundled up and tangled together. And God's creative process day after day, was to pull the threads apart to disentangle them and then begin to weave them into this beautiful picture that we call creation. That's God's creative process. It was a separation of things into what he intended them to be. In verses 26 and 27, we come to the final and crowning separation where God creates humanity. Humans, in the story, are part of creation, but they are unique and distinct within it. Like the animals, humans are given uh, and called to be fruitful and to multiply. That means go and make babies. Woohoo! Unlike the animals... Humanity is given a mandate. There's a separation in terms of their purpose within creation. They are to have dominion over the animals of the earth. Dominion means rulership. But it also means stewardship. It means care. It means protection. Genesis specifies about humanity that there is a separation according to sex. Obviously, other species in God's creation are male and female, but here, God in the text, uh, Genesis specifies God created humanity, male and female. And the significance of that leads us to maybe the most astounding thing about humans in this creation narrative. Unlike the animals, humanity alone has said of them, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Male and female together, twin halves of a human whole that are meant to bear and reflect the image of God into the world. Last week in my introduction to this series that we're going through, we're looking at God's story from Genesis through the book of Acts and into a topical series on the last things. My, my hope with these sermons is to um, help us to make the biblical story more and more our story. And this sermon might not be sort of as immediately practical for you in terms of how you go and live your life tomorrow. Um, but I want to say that this story, this creation narrative, 
It's kind of like laying the foundation for a house. And if you imagine that you've, you've got some people building a house for you, and you go and visit the job site, and they've put the foundation down, um, you can't live in it yet. You might say to them, I can't live in this. this you know, where, there's no roof. Uh, so today's sermon might not give you everything that you want and how to live in God's world. But I think this truth of God's, God being the creator is the foundational truth upon which the house of our lives needs to be built. Another thing I talked about last week was that narratives of the world are always contested. And that how the, I guess, the Christian narrative, which begins with this idea of God creating, has been un- undergoing a process of social deconstruction for at least 500 years. Part of my purpose with these sermons is to enter that contest, to address some of those things that have been deconstructed. And if perhaps this appeals to your imagination and and resonates with how you imagine the world to be, how you think the world's story is, my hope is that through these sermons we can relay and strengthen the foundation of the house of the story of another metaphor of what God's doing in your life. So there are two kind of core strands of the deconstruction and narrative that I want to talk about this morning. The first is to deny the existence of a creator. Perhaps this is an obvious question to ask, but why does it matter? Obvious to ask in a church, I mean. Why does it matter if we're created or uncreated? I think I've got two observations to make about that. One is that without a creator, without an author who has a beginning, middle, and end to this story, we ultimately begin to lose a sense of meaning and purpose to our existence. Now let me be really clear. I'm not saying that if you don't believe in God, you have no meaning or purpose. But I think as a society, when, you, when we sort of officially abandon the truth that God created, our society follows along in that truth. And I really wonder why it is, I know there's many factors, but I sometimes wonder to myself, why is it that in the very progressive, very technologically advanced, very wealthy Western world, we have such huge rates of deaths of despair by suicide or by drug overdose. Why is that? Again, let me be clear. I'm not saying that people who don't believe in God are more depressed than people who do or 
uh, that you are receiving some sort of punishment by disbelieving in God and then finding yourself depressed. Many of you know depression is a big part of my story, right? But I wonder about this as a society. I wonder about what happens when for 200, 500 years we decide to to teach ourselves and and teach our children that we didn't come from anywhere and we're not going anywhere. I wonder what that produces in a society. The other thing that I think is important is summed up by a quote from a Russian novelist named Dostoevsky. And he puts into the mouth of one of his characters in one of his novels that, um, let me get it right, if there is no God, then everything is permissible. He's making the claim, again, that a society that abandons belief in a creator that abandons the belief that the world has a moral structure and order will devolve further and further and further into sin and lawlessness. You could put it that when we deny the creator who untangled those webs, that web of threads, and made this picture, when we deny that creator as a people, as a society... It's like we're starting to scramble them back up again. And we start heading into chaos. I sort of came to this feeling from the opposite direction, you know. When I was questioning the existence of God, one of the arguments that C.S. Lewis um, convinced me by was the moral argument. He said, do you believe that anything is truly right and truly wrong? And I thought, of course I do. There's lots of things that most people agree are right and wrong. And then he said, do you, do you believe that right and wrong is, is a concept? Even if we all disagreed on exactly what is right and wrong, do we, do we agree that there is such a thing as right and wrong? And C.S. Lewis's argument is that if we believe that, then it sort of follows that someone has given that to us. Someone has the ultimate sort of creative, generative authority to say what right and wrong truly is. I'm not going to go into a list or try and describe any particular thing in the world that is evidence of sin. We all know what our own sin is. And I'm not here to lay that onto other people. And again, I'm not here to say that atheists or agnostic people are necessarily worse people than theists or Christians. Because there are plenty of atheists who put us to shame. And there are plenty of Christians who do the same. We need... A creator. The other thing that I think is relevant from Genesis 1 in laying this foundation also has to do with separation. And it's to do with the unique 
purpose and dignity and value of humans. As I've sort of made the case, we've, as a society, denied God for a long time. It's been a process, but it's sort of accelerating rapidly. And I think the result of that ultimately is a denial of the uniqueness and the value of human life. Let me ask you if you've ever heard this sort of line of thinking. Humans are just apes with smartphones. Humans are not special within creation. They're just part of the world. Probably wouldn't say creation. We're just another species. What do you make of that line of thinking? What do you think that that path might lead to? I think that that has dangerous consequences. And not just from people who are sort of obvious villains. You know, I think that if we look back at the last century at the two particularly um, disastrous and murderous movements, both of which were founded on uh, essentially a secular or an atheist premise, the Nazi Party of Germany and the communist parties of uh, China and, um, and Russia, who together were responsible for hundreds of millions of deaths. Um, We don't even have to go that that far towards the people who we can look at and say they, they clearly just had bad intentions. I grew up watching um, beloved biologist and environmentalist David Attenborough and his wonderful description of the plains of Africa. The male rhino is a joy to behold. I just made that up. Um, that's not a quote. But here is a quote. David Attenborough is on the record as saying, for ecological reasons, that humanity is a plague in the earth. Because of what we've done to the environment. Now, I'll put my hand up and say, I believe, because of Genesis 1, that Christians ought to take really good care of the environment. We are called to be stewards. We are called to that as part of the mandate of what it means to be human. So being like being a gardener or, or hiking in nature, like stewarding this earth... Um, whatever that looks like, restricting how much you drive your car around for no reason, these are valuable and worthwhile things. But what do you try and do with a plague? What is your approach to a plague? Well, for the last two years, we've tried to stop the spread, haven't we? We've tried to eliminate it. We've tried to get rid of it. And this anti-human sentiment 
is present in the world today. If we are nothing special, and if we're mucking up the world, then maybe the world would be better off with fewer humans. Some people talk this way. They might be at the extreme end of that line of thinking, but David Attenborough is not at the extreme end. I think his utterance that we are a plague has dangerous consequences. And if I can be so bold, in our nation, while we have put in all this effort to stop the spread and save lives and protect the health of the most vulnerable, we passed two pieces of legislation that involved the killing of human life. One of them was just a few days before the first lockdown in 2020 with the decriminalization of abortion. Now, I want to make something clear again. If you've had an abortion, if you've considered it, if you know someone who does, my heart and my love is with you. And I believe God's heart and love is with you. When we raise these topics, it can be so easy to get G'd up in sort of righteous anger and forget that these are people. But at the same time, I think it's sad And I can remember being up at night while we were going into lockdown and that legislation passed, grieving over the nation that we'd chosen to do this. And I think it's a denial of our creator, but also of the fact that the creator made us in his image. So human life has a unique value and purpose and dignity. From wound to tomb. And even if humans are mucking up the environment, the solution is not to have less of us. The solution is that we stand up and be the children of God we're meant to be. Paul writes in Romans 8, the whole creation is groaning for the unveiling of the children of God. I I believe, seriously, as as an environmentally caring person that humans are the solution to our own mistakes because God has made us so obviously ultimately God is the solution God is the saviour God's the one who will save and restore the earth in the end but I think he's given us this task as humans to be his stewards Humans are not a plague. You are not a member of a race of people, a species of people who are a plague on the earth. I think this has everything to do with the separation of us within creation. Not being taken out of creation, but God's creative process of separating light from dark and day from night and land from water 
He has separated us out distinct within it, uniquely. I want to put it the crowning achievement and accomplishment of the creation that he wanted it to be. Danielle got it right, and I got there in the end, Danielle. That God looked at his creation, he said, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. And then he created Adam that is, and Eve, that is very good. And, last thing, if we can anticipate further down the story, God did not leave us in our fallen state. God entered the creation. And the word did not become flesh and take on the image of an aardvark. The word became flesh and dwelt among us as human. And so God, from the time of Jesus' conception and into eternity, is forever linked to humans. Forever the image of God in humanity has been restored and our job, our task as followers of Jesus is to grow more and more into his likeness. Let's pray. Father, you have given us so much more than we even imagine. You've given us this whole world. You've given us the resources of heaven and earth. And you've given us as humans a unique purpose, a unique value, a unique identity. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege it is to be here, to be alive. Help me, help us to recognize the image of God in one another and to live out the image of God for ourselves, to grow more and more and more into the image of Christ. I mean...